Hello. If you ever go to 10 Downing Street, as I do from time to time, you'll be asked to leave your phone in a locker by the front door. The first time I was asked to do this, I think it was during David Cameron's time as Prime Minister, I asked whether I couldn't just turn it off, keep it with me. I was told that even phones that have been turned off can be activated and used as remote recording devices. I remember thinking, well, this seemed far-fetched. And maybe for someone as boring as me, it is. But having read an engrossing new book about the investigation and exposure of a cyber surveillance system, I will in future hand over my phone without hesitation. There might be some good reasons to hack into mobile phones, but there are certainly some very bad ones too. So if you sold such a system, you presumably want to be very careful about who you sold it to. Or maybe you wouldn't. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by investigative journalists Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud, authors of Pegasus, How the Spy in Our Pocket Threatens the End of Privacy, Dignity and Democracy. Welcome both. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you. So I want to start with you two and the organisation you work for, Forbidden Stories, because you're both pretty fascinating people yourself. So tell us a bit about yourself and tell us a bit about your organization. Laurent, why don't you go first? I'm an investigative journalist for 24, 25 years now. I'm the founder of this organization called Forbidden Stories. Forbidden Stories is um, the only one organization in the world that's mission is to continue the work of assassinated, under threat, and jailed reporters. The goal is really to continue the work, make sure people get access to very uh, critical information. Most of the time, journalists have been killed, have been killed because they were investigating corruption stories, environmental crimes, human rights violation. And the way we are doing that is a collaborative way. That means we are working with many partners at the same time to publish the same investigation in many countries, several countries. So because of that huge task force that we do have, we, we are able to run complex, dangerous, and sensitive investigation like we did on the Pegasus project. So this is a a five years old organization, quite new, but we do work with a 16 news organization and 150 journalists all over the world, just to, to give you the big picture of what Forbidden Stories is. It's such a fantastic idea. I mean, it, often one hears about organizations and what they do, and it's sometimes a bit opaque. I can't quite understand it, but I completely got this idea of taking those stories forward, which had been stopped by assassination or harassment or whatever. Sandrine, tell us a bit about yourself. So I'm an investigative journalist as well. I have been working for TV documentaries and, and producing TV documentaries as an investigative journalist. And I have joined Forbidden Story three years ago as editor-in-chief. I have supervised the cartel projects to pursue the work of Mexican journalists who were um, assassinated. And of course, we worked with Laurent on the Pegasus project uh, uh, that was published in, in July 21 to expose the misuse of the tools called Pegasus. Thank you. And the story, it's a wonderfully exciting story. It's a great book. Uh, I'm not surprisingly written by two journalists, but it's beautifully written and, and very engrossing. It starts with a list 
doesn't it? I mean, that's in a way the whole thing revolves around the list. So just, Sandra, tell us about the list. Yeah, that huge international project started with the with a list of 50,000 phone numbers we at Forbidden Story got access with, but we were not the only organization who got access to, to that list. Amnesty International Security Lab also had, had the list. And basically, you start with that list of 50,000 phone numbers. The information we had is that uh, those phone numbers had been selected for potential targeting with Pegasus, a very invasive spyware sold by the champion in its category, a company called NSO. And basically, you have those phone numbers, but you don't know who is hiding behind the numbers. And you also need to basically prove and give the evidence that those phone numbers were really targeted or hacked. So we had two challenges. The first one was to find the faces behind the numbers. And when we started doing that work, we immediately realized that there were many journalists, many human rights activists, many lawyers, many political opponents in that list. So it was clearly not what the company was letting the, the people believe. And the other thing was try to find if the numbers were really targeted. And we did that with the help of Amnesty's International Security Lab, which had set up a specific methodology and platform to have the phone analyzed. So, and by the way, you must choose between you who's the right person to answer each of these questions, but we know about the two of you. Then there are two other absolutely central characters to this story. There's a lot of other characters to this story that I'll come to, but there's two other central characters, which are the leader and deputy at the Amnesty International Security Lab. So, Lauren, tell us about these two people, because they are, although you're the authors of the book and you are two of the central characters, they are the other two pivotal people. Yeah, this investigation, the Pegasus project, is really was a success because we were able to put evidences, like we were able to find traces of infection, which is so crucial when you do that kind of journalism that you need to have evidence because you are facing a lot of states, some companies, and you need to be able to, to prove what you say. So in order to get evidences, we rely on the work of those two guys, Claudio Garnieri and Don Cao Carol, who were living in Berlin, in Germany. And they do work for Amnesty International Security Lab. And they are the expert in tracking Pegasus for years, tracking the spyware Pegasus. For years, they were accumulating, they were having, collecting so many knowledge, background, evidences about, about the spyware. What kind of traces this spyware is living on your device? How to find and search for that kind of traces? And they were able to invent something that even some intelligent services were not able to do that. They were able to evolve a kind of magic tool where you can know if someone is spying on your device. You can know if the Pegasus spyware is taking the control of the device, is inside your device. And Claudio and Dunka, as you say, two very important characters, but they are, first of all, two important person, citizens, technicians, geeks, who were, I think, at the beginning of something that is quite um, a revolution the, in how to defend, how to prevent cyber attack. Because not only they find the, the tool and the methodology to find traces, so we were able to prove that person of interest, many kind of people were the it was about journalists, human rights activists, lawyers, uh, opponents, uh, political uh, people. We found traces on a lot of devices. And those two persons, 
did share with uh, publicly the methodology as well. So in many other countries, right after the publication, you were having uh, thousands of citizens in many in many countries who were discovering, thanks to the work of Claudio and Donka, that they have been victimized, they have been targeted. So yeah, the work of Claudio and Donka is something that is extremely precious, yes, and very unique. And you pay warm tribute to them throughout the book. Now, in case we're leaving any of our listeners behind, let's be clear about what it is we're talking about in terms of this spyware. And actually, you know, there are some elements of technical elements in the book, which I can broadly understand, but not in detail. But I did understand, I think, you'll tell me if I did, the fundamentals here, because I recognized, and I think you use this parallel in the book, you know, I work for an organization and sometimes when there's a problem with my laptop, I can get the IT department to, they will ask me to put in a word or a code word or whatever, and they will then take over my laptop in order to repair it. And, you know, I'm sitting there while they're doing that. I might leave the room and have a cup of tea or whatever. And then having made the repair, discovered what it is they need to discover, they then log out and it's back to being my computer. And that's a work computer anyway, so of course I don't mind. The spyware, Pegasus, it did exactly the same for a mobile phone. And indeed, and this I thought was fascinating, the origins of the system starts in that benign way. It starts by being a service, very successful service, grows a global business, which does precisely that, enables help desks to help you out when you've got a problem with your mobile phone by using the same method. But then, of course, somebody realizes, oh, well, hang on. If you can do it because someone allows you to do it, is there a way of doing it even if the person doesn't want you? They then realize there were ways of infecting phones, basically, so that that level of control, the level of control I might give to my IT help desk, could be given to a third party. Is that is that a, an accurate description of what was going on here? I think that's how the company NSO Group start, with uh, Shelley Volio, Omri Levy, and a third person, Nick Camry, were yeah, thinking about developing a strategy to have a business model in that spyware industry by taking entirely the control of some um, device. Uh, but before them, before the NSO group, there were other companies. It's not the first time that you have companies trying to target funds. So you were having the Italian company hacking team who were before the NSO group, a kind of other leader in the cyber surveillance. The thing you have to know about cyber surveillance, it's, uh, it's an industry that is extremely lucrative. It's like a, a supermarket for dictators, tyrants, and many other regimes who want to buy spyware. You can find many kinds of spyware to sell, but clearly Pegasus was the most advanced one. It's a military weapon used against civilians. It's a military weapon because it's considered as a military weapon by the defense minister of Israel. When the NSO group wants to export that, they need to get a license for that. So they officially the spyware is only sold to catch the bad guys, to catch terrorists, to catch criminals. But what we were able to discover is that actually they were, the spyware were massively misused against journalists, human rights activists, and so on. People who were not criminal, people who were not terrorists. And this happened because nobody is controlling that. So maybe we can discuss this later. Yes, I want to get into that in, in a moment. But just while we're still talking about how all this works, another thing that is fascinating about your story, about the story in your book, is that in the end, the only way you could be certain 
that people had been infected with this spyware was to get hold of their phones and for them to trust you or trust Claudio and Duncan enough to let them basically download the contents of those phones and explore the code in order to be able to know whether or not they've been infected. And in quite a few cases, that's quite a challenge for you to, to convince people to hand over. Their, I thought there was something interesting in this book about our relationship to our mobile phones. It's quite an emotional moment. Firstly, when people hand over their phones to be examined. And of course, these are people who often people who've been threatened and intimidated in various ways. But secondly, how they feel when you tell them, yes, yes, you have been attacked. And that means that there have been people who've had access to every single thing on your phone. Yeah, I think you can just imagine all the information you, you stuck on your phone today. I mean, your Google searches on your phone, your photos, of course, and your very personal photos. You have your passwords, you have all your contacts, you have your emails. I mean, all your life is on your phone today and, and your phone probably knows more about you than your husband or your kids. So, I mean, it already gives you a lot about what Pegasus can access. And we're speaking here of a, an invasive tool, so a totally invisible tool that hack your phone without you having knowledge or, or even realizing that something is happening. And then, well, once it's in your phone, it, it can extract everything. So this is extremely violent. But of course, for us, technically speaking, and, and from the investigative point of view, the challenge was to convince people to, to access those phones just to verify that those have been hacked or targeted. And this was this was another challenge in, in a very complicated project that took a lot of of our energy for for more than a year. But we had to contact people who were political opponents or journalists in very dangerous countries where freedom of expression doesn't exist. We had to contact them using people who would serve as intermediaries, and then once we were safely in in, in contact with them convince them to give the entire content of the phone. So you can imagine how difficult it was. And during a, a period of pandemic and COVID, it was a real challenge and it took us months to arrive to that point. Yeah, I want to talk in a moment about the kind of journalistic story here because it's it's such a big part of all of this. But let's talk a bit about NSO. So NSO is this company which blithely denies that anybody other than the good guys, as it were, that, that is to say democratic states have got this and that nobody is using this other than to protect life and limb. And they carry on maintaining that until the evidence is overwhelming, at which point they just go on a kind of counterattack and try and try and smear you. I thought, I mean, one of the things about your approach is you're incredibly rigorous. You do not make any kind of assertion which you cannot back up. And I wondered in that regard, one of the things that I felt you left slightly open was the degree of culpability of the Israeli state in what NSO were doing. You, you pretty heavily imply that NSO was being given a kind of green light to flog this spyware to people who didn't fit the claimed criteria of being democratic states using it for benign purposes. But tell us a little bit about what that relationship between NSO and the Israeli state. Well, first, if the NSO group wants to export the spyware, they need to be greenlighted by the government first. They need the license. So there is an official, of course, relation on a day-by-day -day basis between the NSO group and the Israeli authorities. 
Secondly, what we were able to discover that many times in several visits, the governments of Israel were going into some countries and trying to sign many contracts, trying to sell many things. And the NSO solution, the spyware, was amongst the product to be sold to the customers. And we were able to, to prove that, to document that, and to see how some commercial relationships already were, were starting at, the, at this point. Then the other thing that you, you need to know is that when NSO is employing a lot of people, almost eight or 900, so now they have fired some people, but uh, a lot of those people were coming from the military from what we call the Unit 8200. This is a unit of cyber surveillance with people extremely skilled who are designing, conceiving some spyware for the military. And once they have served for the military, some of them did join the NSO group. So yeah, there is a, an ongoing relationship between the NSO company and the governments. And the thing is, is as well about how to we asked the question about the author to the Israeli authorities about if they have some kind of backdoor about the solution of that NSO is setting any kind of window about who is targeting who the NSO spyware. But we don't have any kind of evidence on that, and we don't know. And the government of Israel didn't tell us too much about that. No, but as you say in the book, Benjamin Netanyahu was very much wanting to focus on. Firstly, deregulating in order to maximize the penetration of the incredibly impressive Israeli technology industry. And obviously also, of course, focus very much on Israeli security and if it was in the interest of Israel to have some pretty shady friends, well, that was okay if it was in the interest of Israel. So so that's a really interesting part of the story. Let's talk about the journalism here, because this is a story also of journalism, modern journalism. And I want to look at two elements of that. So the first is, and this is one of the great virtues of the book, is you give us the stories of some of the journalists that you had worked with and who you found out nearly in every case, I think, they had been infected by this Pegasus spyware, therefore making them, putting them much more risk. And not just them, of course, but their families and their friends and their lawyers and goodness knows who else. I was just going to ask both of you very briefly to choose one of those journalists that you'd work with and that you were working on behalf of and just tell us a little bit about them. So, Sandrine, why don't you start? Choose one of the brave journalists that you talk about in the book and tell us a little bit about them. I mean, we worked with so many brave journalists, it's difficult to choose, but I think that there were two kinds of journalists. They were journalists we contacted and we worked with because they were appearing on the list and, and they could help us first having evidence that their phone were hacked and, and then find sources on the ground because they were living in, in complicated country. And then there were the other stories of journalists who were victims of the spyware but could not take part of our investigation because some of them, like Omar Adi, were, were jailed. So, I mean, they're all very brave and, and they all deserve this two or three minutes, but I would just give you the example of Shabal Spani. He's a Hungarian journalist working for Direct 36. Uh, and he's basically exposing corruption stories, embezzlement stories, abuse of power stories in Hungary. He's very brave because there are not so many investigative journalists who can do such strong stories in a very complicated regime. So he's been 
doing that work and what we discovered when we when we saw the list is that his number was appearing so we had to contact him and and we did it through other journalists as as we explain in the book we had to go through Bastian Obermeyer and Frederick Obermeyer, the two amazing journalists who were uh, at the origin of the Panama Papers, who had to meet him in person in Hungary and organize a meeting in a room with no phones, no no device, to let him know that he was potentially targeted by Pegasus. Uh, Shabols immediately realized how dangerous this was, not only for him, but for his sources. And I mean, this is something very important about hacking. I mean, when we're investigative journalists and hacking us is not only a problem because it exposes our personal life, our family, but it exposes our sources. And sources are the most important thing when you're doing investigation. Your priorities is to secure your sources. And and so for Shabbos, it was a it was of course a big issue. But he still accepted to be part of the project and he managed to convince much more Hungarian victims to give us their phone, to have their phone analyzed, which made the Hungarian story and the Hungarian part of the Pegasus project quite big. Yeah, and, and for me on my hand, yeah, I'm thinking about Kadija Ismailova. Kadija Ismailova, she's a journalist in Azerbaijan. She has been jailed for more than one year, she has been spied on even with 10 years ago, really. She's really maybe one of the last journalists in that dictatorship, one of the last independent voices over there. And when we began this project with Sandrine, we start to cross-check with our own contact list to see if there were any uh, phone numbers or friends or contact offers who might be in that list, who might be targeted, who might be surveilled. And we found the number of Khadija. And so we found a way to inform Khadija, as you you can read in the book, and to tell her that she wasn't her phone number was on the list, that we needed to run some forensic. And we told Khadija that uh, her phone was compromised, that she was infected. And being infected is really something extremely it's a traumatic experience. It's like you have the David is in your pocket. It's like you have a spy in your pocket. We know everything about you, maybe more than yourself. We will transfer your secrets, your intimacy to your worst enemies and to some people who at some point might use this information against you. So yeah, it's a traumatic moment and, and we have to consider those people really as a victim. Yeah, that's a military weapon used against civilians and there is nothing to protect them. There is no mechanism to seek justice. There is, once you are infected, you're trapped. Once you're infected, you, there is nothing too much to do because it's difficult to sue NSO, difficult to sue a state that will deny using the NSO uh, solution. It's difficult to sue the company Apple who sold you the device you were targeted through. So it's complicated and it's basically the wild west. There is nothing no regulation, and we are there because of that lack of regulation. Well, there's so many other things that we could talk about, about what's happened to NSO as a consequence of your brilliant work of whether the companies like Apple should be doing more and what they are doing. But I, I'm going to encourage people to buy the book and to read that. I don't want to tell them everything this simple. It's, it's so rich. But I do think there's one last thing I do want to talk to you both about, and that's the Pegasus Project, like Panama Papers, was an example of this phenomenon of journalists working in a global network with high stakes 
and overcoming, as it were, the there's a bit in your book where you've got senior people from the Washington Post and the Guardian, two organizations that might normally kind of compete to grab a scoop, but they're working together on this project. So I'm interested in the growth of these kinds of initiatives. Am I right to think that this is a kind of growing phenomenon? And and why do you think it's growing? Is it a result of just of globalization or, or is it to do with with what you have to do because of the kind of bad actors that we that we face? I think it's growing because it makes sense. Collaborative journalism is really for me, for her, the future of journalism. Because with collaboration, you have more protection. It doesn't make sense to kill one reporter if you know that you have 90 other reporters ready to continue the work. So first, collaboration brings protection. Then when you are collaborating with a large group of journalists, you can split the work, you can divide the task, and then you can share your resources. So as a business model, that's a very, very efficient one. Then for the opinion, for the reader, collaboration is extremely interesting and very efficient because you have 80 people, 90 people who will fact check every single sentence you will read at the end in the piece of the Washington Post, in the piece of Le Monde and all the newspapers we are working with. And more than that, I think it's a collaboration between journalists can also help to restore the trust. We are facing now a difficult situation with the public opinion, with a large distrust with the news organization. Most of the people don't trust too much the media or the news organization. They don't like too much journalists. And I think by by showing that when it's about defending the general interest, when it's about investigating huge global crime, whether it's about environmental crimes, large corruption skills, or human rights violation, if we can show that we can work together and have some impact, because that's also about having more impact through the collaboration, I think that makes sense. And so this is why I think collaborative journalism is more and more a trend, but that's still the beginning, because we have been trained for years to become lone wolf reporters. We have been trained to be alone on the stage, not sharing the awards with the others. We have been trained to be alone, not sharing our sources and our way to do our reporting. So, But I really think that sometimes some specific project, especially when one of the journalists is killed, when we need to to be united. So that's, uh, that's sometimes not easy because you have a, a lot of uh, competition amongst partners. You can have some ego issues as well. It's how to coordinate all of that. But at the end, you need the talent of someone in another country who will have much more knowledge than you on how this spyware has been used against that people in this country. And the crime is more and more global. So facing that kind of globalization of the crime, we need a global answer to tackle that. And this is what Forbidden Stories is about. Sandrine, I'm really interested in your perspective on this as well, because you know, if I think back across my life, so often the progressive forces that I wanted to work with have not been able to collaborate, have not been able to put their own organizational interests or personal interests or egos to one side. And that has been a huge problem. And the element of your book that is almost like a thriller is as you get towards the day of the publication, the simultaneous publication in, in, in newspapers, broadcasters around the world, Will your collaboration hold together? Will everybody resist the temptation to kind of break the embargo, to go first? And it does 
I don't want to take away the jeopardy from the book, but but it it ends well. It is a fantastic thing that you did that. Yeah, looking back at it, it, it was quite a challenge. And of course, the more you approach publication date, the more it becomes complicated, the more pressure you have as a coordinator. But, but for every media organization that's part of that project, the tension, of course, becomes bigger. You have uh, a legal pressure that is very important. You have to be sure and fact check every single word you've written. So you understand what is at stake. You understand what are the risks of exposing also those kind of practice. So, of course, it's huge. But in the same time, everybody understands the interest of a system where other media will, uh, will publish at the same time. This brings more impact. This makes the story global. And this, as Laurent said, brings also protection. You're much stronger when you're 40, 50, 60 than when you're doing that on your own. So I think for the partners who who working in our consortium and in, in the collaborative project we're launching, people realize how much benefit they could get from uniting their forces. And I think this is exactly what happened for, for the Pegasus project. And we would never have been able to, to do something like that on our own at Forbidden Story. We, we totally understood from the, the minute we got the list that this had to be a huge collaborative effort. You need source on the ground in different countries. You need technical expertise. You need people who have good contact with the intelligence service. You need all kinds of skills. And, and you cannot have all those skills in one single media outlet. And I'm sure that neither of you could tell me if you what you're working on now, because it would rather destroy the point of it if it's anything like the Pegasus work that you did. But do you think we'll see more of this in the future? Of course, you, um, you're right. We cannot reveal and we never reveal for source protection, for the protection of our, our teams, what we are investigating. But I, I really think that maybe it's also a question of generation of journalists. I think we we need a global push at different level to give more space for collaborative journalism. And we need to to convince more and more news organizations that it's worth it to do that. It's worth it to 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 team up. Not on every subject, not on every stories, but when it's global, when it's complicated, when it's dangerous, we need to, to team up. But I think that's that's a global push, that's a global effort that we need to train, we need to, to teach collaborative journalism at school. And this is basically with the song what we are doing as well from France. But I think that we need to change the paradigm, the, the way to think. Crime is more and more global, so we need to share the economy as well in the journalism world is not that good, so we need to share resources. And so that co- kind of collaboration could really bring a lot of solution. So convincing as well newspapers to give more spaces to collaboration. And sometimes when you are working together, you get much more information, much more sources, much more security about your, your story as well. So, so yeah, I'm, I really hope so that we, we will have more and more collaboration that will give more and more protection to many journalists. Well, I can tell you both that one of the effects of the book on me was to restore my enthusiasm in journalism. You know, the the day-to-day dealings I have with journalists. Just the other day, someone from a national paper ran me because they were doing a explicitly doing a hatchet job on me because I've been too critical of the government. So you know, sometimes my day-to-day experiences of journalism aren't what I might want them to be. But but reading your book, I was 
inspired by what you've done and by the incredible bravery of the people that you work with. So thank you for your work and thank you for the book. And I can strongly recommend Pegasus, How a Spy in Our Pocket Threatens the End of Privacy, Dignity and Democracy. It's absolutely fascinating. And as I say, it'll keep you on the edge of your seat. Laurent, Sandrine, thank you so much. Thank you. The book Pegasus is a story of corruption, of criminality, of oppression, political violence, a story of some very bad people and some very brave people. But it's also about something that affects us all, privacy. The concept of privacy in human terms is comparatively new, yet though while for the majority of our existence, when we live largely in small intimate groups, it would have been an alien idea, now in mass society it feels indispensable. Yet while there are malign actors and negligence and greedy ones, arguably the main reason we give up our privacy is because we choose to, by having our devices through our Facebook pages, our Insta pictures, our TikTok videos, it feels to me that we are confused and vulnerable when it comes to privacy and its role in our individual and collective lives. It's something we need to discuss more. But perhaps that's for a future edition of Bridges to the Future. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.